This is Illegal Tender Season 9. I'm Jana Heron. In our last two episodes, we met Axton and heard about her lifelong battle against identity theft, beginning when she was a child and ending with Axton finding her perpetrator. In today's episode, you'll hear from Eva Velasquez, an expert in identity theft. We will learn more about the ways identity can be stolen and learn how to protect ourselves from it. Great, Eva, thank you so much for joining. So what I want to talk about today is child identity theft. But before we get into that part of it, I think we need to really get a good definition of what identity theft is. I think a lot of people hear that term and are not exactly familiar with what it entails and what it means. I think that's a great way to to level set. So identity theft is where someone other than you is misusing your identity credentials in order to get goods or services or actually do anything that you would do with your own identity credentials. So credentials can be your social security number, a driver's license number, a passport number. They can even be biometric information. So pictures, fingerprints, all of those different things, all of those little pieces that go into your own identity profile and that you use on a regular basis to say, hey, I am me, so I want to apply for this loan. I want to um, get this credit card. I need medical care. I need a prescription. Oh, yes, sorry, I just got a speeding ticket. This is me. All of those things. And if your credentials are compromised, if they're out there in the wild or lost or stolen, they can be misused by a thief in all of those ways that I just mentioned. Wow. So that's that really could mess up a lot of your life then. You work with victims of identity theft. So what kinds of things do people have to do if they find that they are a victim of ID theft? You know, going back to the identity credential piece, it really depends on what credentials have been misused. It's it's a very different recovery process and plan if your username and password for a particular account has been compromised. If that's the case, you immediately go in and change your password. And by the way, if you haven't changed your passwords and, and you're not updating them regularly, please, please do so right now. If your social security number is compromised, again, very different process. You, you want to take the, the first steps that you take, you want them to be very meaningful and to fix the immediate problem. And so it depends on, again, what aspect of your life it's affecting and what credentials are being misused. And so how how often does this happen? I mean, we we hear about like huge data breaches, Equifax comes to mind, where a lot of those credentials that you're talking about are now floating somewhere out there where people who have not so good intentions in mind can get them. Well, it depends on which this you're talking about. So how often are data breaches occurring? Well, on a daily basis. We actually <laughs> aggregate that data um, and it's happening everywhere. And if you and if you look at the trends, they really are like a, a hockey stick. They they keep increasing exponentially over you know the last decade. We've been collecting the data for about fifteen years now, 
And But as far as identity theft, the misuse of those credentials, you know, it varies depending on the research firm that's doing it, but it is usually somewhere, you know, 13, 15, 16 million incidents annually. That's every single year. And wow. it's also been the number one uh, type of fraud complaint reported to the Federal Trade Commission for a number of years. They did have a little blip where uh, imposter scams were number one, but that was very short-lived. And, and once again, identity theft is is the number one reported complaint. So it's a, it's a huge problem with massive impacts. It's affecting millions and millions and millions of people every single year. And yet it's still in some ways a bit invisible because it, it's just hard for people to wrap their heads around, one, how vulnerable they are, and and two, well, is this really a is this really a crime? I mean, I never left my bedroom and I became a victim. How does that how does that happen? It it almost doesn't feel like a crime is being committed, but it is. It, I can assure you that's when it happens. That is how people feel. They feel very violated. They feel like they can't trust. They they look at the the guardrails at the the processes and procedures that are supposed to be in place to protect them and they have you know demonstrably failed and and they just go I cannot believe this happened to me or to a relative and it's I don't understand frankly I've been in this space for a long time how it isn't on the top of everyone's list to be talking about and resolving because every single person has identity credentials. We are all part of this potential victim pool. So let, let me ask you how, since you have, you work at a place where you help many victims deal with the fallout from having their identities stolen, how did you get into this line of work in the beginning? Well, it's going to sound a little bit like I cobbled this together. So I, I started at the San Diego District Attorney's Office back in 1986. And I was there for 21 years with the last 11 years focused on investigating white collar crime, economic crimes. And one of the things that I found during my career was how few victim resources we had for economic crime victims. So my role there was to do the investigation and get the bad guy. Uh, So providing recovery services, helping people really rebuild their life wasn't my primary role, but I would want to help them with that and send them somewhere and get them the services they needed. But there was this kind of thought process, not even behind the scenes. It was, it was pretty out there in the open. Well, they're not violent crime victims, so they don't really need services and it's not that big of a deal. They, they kind of need to get over it. And you know, over the years, I just thought this is not at all accurate. I, I then, when I left the DA's office, I went over to the San Diego Better Business Bureau for about five years and ran the operations department there. And again, focused on investigations and pattern recognition and, and looking at some of these consumer complaints that would come in and, you know, do these rise to the level of being reported to a regulatory or criminal agency. And then after that, when I came to the ITRC almost eight years ago, it was really about providing these resources to victims and making sure that they have someplace to go where they can be made whole and where they can receive some understanding and compassion that 
this crime that's occurred is not this minor thing that some people may be making it out to be. Understanding why they they feel like crime victims. They've been violated. They this is in some cases it's destroying their lives, it's destroying their ability to pursue their goals and in not only helping these individuals but bringing that perspective to industry leaders and to decision makers in government and being the voice for these folks because oftentimes they're they're so traumatized and also focused on rebuilding their lives they they don't have time to you know become activists and and try to demonstrate to these folks how it's affecting them so we are doing that on their behalf and we do it through conversations through research and through just working with all of these other entities and organizations and bringing this victim voice, these victims of economic crimes and fraud to the forefront so that as a, as a country, we can understand this is a huge problem. It has a huge impact and these people deserve to be heard and made whole. You talked about the trauma that a lot of these people experience after being a victim of identity theft. And I guess, you know, for some people, they they might think, oh, well, you just have to go and change your social security number or something like that. In your experience, what are some of like the more extreme cases and what what did people face and how hard was it to recover? You know, that's actually a more challenging question than you would think because Generally speaking, by the time people get to the Identity Theft Resource Center, they're they're in a pretty they have a pretty extreme case. It's not something that they can easily resolve on their own. So I have a a panoply of examples. One of the examples that sticks out in my mind is this um, young woman. She was over the age of eighteen, and her mother was also helping her with this issue. But she wanted to pursue higher education. And she discovered that she was not eligible for student loans because she had this very long and tainted credit history. I think it was over 10 years old. And they had to go, she and her mother had to go one by one for all of these different financial accounts and instruments and clean them up. It actually took four years. Oh my goodness. Four years for her to get the last one cleaned up. Now, this is a very extreme case. It's really one that's the longest one I am personally aware of. And when you consider that she had to delay her education until she got that cleaned up, and whether it's a semester, a year, or four years, as it is in this extreme case, that's she is now four years behind her peers. And that affects her throughout her entire life, her earning potential, the job opportunities, what kind of economic climate she's going to be coming into when she graduates. All of those downstream effects are going to have these, these long-reaching impacts on her life. And then the other example that I think about, it's a medical identity theft case, and it was a, a, a familial case where this gentleman's brother had stolen his identity credentials and used them to get goods and medical goods and services all across the country. And so every, because it's not a, a universal system, every time he would get something cleaned up, he would come to find out, oh no, you now have this medical procedure and this prescription from a hospital in Maine. And now you have one from some kind of clinic in Florida. And he had spent years and years and years 
going through, you know, state by state, region by region, trying to clean up this mess. And the only respite he got was when his brother was finally convicted and put in prison for a couple of years. And then as soon as his brother got out, he started up again. Oh, my goodness. So these are extreme examples, of course, and I do want people to realize I'm not I'm not trying to to fearmonger here, but it does occur. And and within this spectrum, we certainly have people who are simply looking at, you know, maybe it takes two or three months, but that is still a long period of time for you to be kind of have your life hijacked and you can't move forward. This identity theft has put this roadblock, this barrier in front of you. And until you clean up that mess, you can't move forward in your life. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds like someone who's been a victim of a crime and that it's kind of a big deal. Yeah, no, definitely it does. And like you said, it also gets in the way of like those things, those goals that you had in your life and things like that. And it it sounds terrible that you have to put all that on hold and you probably are stressed and and in the case of the brother, that's interesting. How often does this happen when it's someone you know that actually is stealing your identity? I feel like that's a whole nother layer. It is. And I don't feel like we have really good, reliable data on familial identity theft rates because oftentimes it's underreported. You know, that the the example I gave was pretty extreme and and it was it needed to be reported so that he could get some relief. But sometimes the the victim in this case will decide, no, we're going to handle this as a family matter and we'll we'll figure it out and we'll take care of it because I am not going to report my mom to the police. I'm not going to report my my sister. I'm not going to report, you know, Aunt Betty or Uncle Bob. We're just going to handle it in the family. We'll make them pay it back, what, whatever they decide. And so it actually doesn't ever get reported to the police. But But the reality is, it's a crime of opportunity. And the thief, first and foremost, needs to have access to your identity credentials, particularly your social security number. Well, who, other than the data breaches that we talked about, who else has access? Usually that's that's caregivers or family members that generally have to protect kids. That's their job. And so they're protecting their identity credentials. And if they misuse them, then that child becomes a victim. And that's the one part I wanted to go into about child identity theft. You told us about the first extreme example, which it was a woman, a young woman, and her mother helped it to clean up her credit history after they found out that she had her credentials stolen and a 10 years worth of bad credit history. But you also mentioned that this could happen to a child and it could be their own parents or someone um, that they trust. Can you go into that a little bit more about child identity theft? Well, again, it's a it's a crime of, of opportunity. So who else has access to that information but you know a caregiver or someone close to the child? In we've done a lot of work with foster youth and we suspect we again we don't have really good data. There are some studies out there but their identity credentials are in so many different systems because they pass through all of these different programs. Sometimes they're going you know, to different foster homes and at that point, the, the foster parents have access to this information. And so as these identity credentials just kind of keep getting passed around and around, they become more vulnerable. 
So I, I kind of circle back to it's about the credentials. It's about how they're safeguarded. Additionally, kids can sometimes compromise themselves, particularly older children, when they are, you know, getting, they get a driver's license and they think, isn't this amazing? I'm so happy. And they take a picture of it and go, yay, look, I really got it. (laughs) They're in the moment of this, you know, celebratory mindset of look at this great thing that I just did and not necessarily realizing that that is, uh, that's a self-compromise and it's creating a vulnerability for them. So there, there are so many different ways that the credentials can be compromised and so many different ways that they can be misused by so many different people. I mean, I, I think that's really a key point here is that we tend to think of this as an adult crime, but it's not. Children have identity credentials. When I, when I think about the, the, the victim pool, the potential victim pool for any type of crime, Identity crimes are the only ones where I kind of go, it is every person in the country. It doesn't matter what your age is. It doesn't matter what your socioeconomic status is. It doesn't matter what your zip code is. If you have identity credentials, which you do, you are a potential victim. So going back to the very first example that you gave us, that it took four years for this young woman to clean up her credit history, that was one of the things that stuck out to me is why was it so hard? I mean, she, she obviously was, her identity thief was opening accounts when she was under 18. So she, you know, really couldn't be opening those accounts, but it took so long to convince, I guess, lenders and stuff that this wasn't her that did it. Well, I think one of the things that people need to understand it, because we have some uniform processes But really, this type of crime is the only one that I'm aware of, and I've been in the criminal justice system for decades, where the victim has to go to multiple organizations and entities to report the crime and resolve it. So when you're looking at a case where there are, let's just say 10, 10 different financial accounts that have been opened across various lenders, maybe it's some major credit cards, maybe it's a car loan, maybe it's a mortgage, maybe there's a a couple retail credit instruments in there. They have to go, yes, they have to go to the credit bureaus. Of course they do. But in addition to that, going to all three of the credit bureaus, they have to go to each one of those places where the account was opened and prove, show documentation and prove that it was not them that did that. Each one. And depending on the processes where that financial instrument was taken out, there are a lot of factors that can go into that. But just, just think about that. You know, you, you are the victim of another crime. You report it to the police and maybe you go through an issue with the, the, you know, a prosecutorial agency. And those are the entities that you work with. When it's this type of crime, you are working with banks, medical providers, you know, mortgage lenders, really it runs the gamut and you have to tell your story, provide your documentation and convince that other party that you are a victim of this crime every single time. And that's one of the reasons why it can take so long. And the other reason is you can have an active and persistent thief who, where it's like whack-a-mole, like the, the example I gave you about the brother, where he cleans up one issue 
and then another one pops up. And that happens, unfortunately, with some regularity. And in that example with the brother, what, why was he doing that? Was there a reason he needed a lot of medical care or it just seems like an odd thing to do across the country? <laughs> Well, I mean, I, I I don't know. I can't get into the, the criminal mind in that aspect, but I think part of it was I need these things. I have this way of getting it where I don't have to be responsible for the payments, and therefore I'm going to use it to my advantage. Wow. And then in the first example, another question I have is, did they ever find out who was behind the identity theft? Was it someone they knew, or was it one of those where someone got a young woman's credentials a long time ago. Well, the unfortunate reality is that in the vast, vast, vast majority of cases, the thief is not caught and they, and they certainly aren't prosecuted. There, there is very little justice in this space. And I know that that really harms victims because they, they just feel like, you know, nobody's going to pay a price for this we really try to focus their energy on their own personal recovery and taking that that anger and sometimes you know despair and taking it and focusing it on cleaning up their identity and moving forward with their lives so as far as with that prime example to be honest i don't know i i don't know whatever came of the perpetrator of that and that was sort of think about it that's sort of the role switch you know my job used to be to get the bad guy and at this point, with this organization, my focus is on trying to make the victims whole and helping them to recover. I also know from personal experience that, you know, resources and allocation of those resources, they really aren't put towards economic crime victims. And I, I'm not going to say that we should be taking resources away from uh, victims of, of violent crimes or you know, victims of domestic violence or things of that nature. I'm certainly not going to say that. But at the same time, we have just minimized the resources that we put towards towards and for victims of economic crimes, you know, to the degree that there, there just are very, very few prosecutions. And oftentimes it has to rise to the level where it's these very big fraud rings and there have to be huge, huge losses so they're looking at it in aggregate when, you know, you're going, oh, well, it's a $12 million loss. So that rises to the level of where we should be paying attention. But believe me, the, the individuals who are victimized, and maybe it's only $100 or $120, but it really depends on the co full context of your life. Is that amount of money going to create a terrible hardship for you where you have the domino effect and you can't, you know, pay your rent? keep the lights on, all of those things, these smaller dollar amount losses, one, they add up to huge losses. And two, they have a huge impact on the individual. And in some ways, I think we've forgotten that. Yeah. So why do you think it's been minimized just because it's a small dollar amount? You think that there'd be more reason to invest in this, especially since we're so dependent on technology. And as you said, data breaches are um, only increasing day by day. And, you know, financial companies and stuff have a huge um, stake in this as well. Well, and that's a big part of it. Sometimes there's a little finger pointing 
not, you know, it's someone else's problem. It's the, it's the company. This is a civil matter. It's the company that actually issued the credit. It's their problem and they should um, be resolving it. And there is some truth to that. There is a level of responsibility with these organizations, certainly. It's also just a matter of we don't have infinite resources and how we allocate them for things like law enforcement and investigations. And And it's also a matter of the, I think, a level of sort of personal responsibility. There's still a lot of shame, victim shaming in a lot of different areas. And particularly when it comes to things like self-compromise or, or falling for a scam and providing your identity credentials and then they get misused, there's, there's some shame there. And, and unfortunately, culturally, we will do some of that and say, well, why did you do that? That wasn't very smart. It's your fault. It's your responsibility. But again, these are crime victims and they deserve to have those resources allocated towards them. And then the last thing I'll say is that the because of the global nature of you know e-commerce and the technology that we're using, there is that other layer of we can't get to the thief anyway. They aren't even in this country. They aren't even in a country where we could extradite them for prosecution. We are better off going after the ones that we can catch, pursue, and actually bring to justice. So there are a number of layers to this problem. There isn't just one thing, but those are some of the top things. And what about in the cases, like that second example you gave, where you do know who the perpetrator is, and if it's your family, what extra layer of is there when it comes to the emotional trauma for those identity theft victims? I, I think part of it is that feeling of betrayal where when the, when the perpetrator is a stranger or, or unknown, you certainly feel like your trust has been violated and, and you feel like you can't trust anybody. But when it's someone that you do know and someone that you have a history with and that you know you just think would never harm me, would never do these things to me, and they do it, you definitely feel betrayed. I think the other challenge, I'll I'll bring up another example, and I do think the other challenge is, depending on the family dynamics, there is a level of, you are the betrayer. You are the one that is, is doing this. It's particularly, I've seen it particularly prevalent when it's a parent that has stolen their child's identity you know, this is my mom, this is my dad. Yeah, they weren't supposed to do that, but they raised me and I love them and I don't really want to see them get in trouble. And then when you get an entire family involved, I I have this very vivid memory. It was a number of years ago, but I was talking with a victim who said, she said, you know, no matter what happens, I'm the one that loses here because if I report my mom half of my family won't talk to me. And if I don't report her, the other half won't talk to me. What am I supposed to do? Here, she has done nothing wrong. She is the victim in this case. And yet here is this tremendous amount of pressure and weight being put on her decision of how she handles being a crime victim. Isn't that terrible? Yeah, that's got to be a very, very difficult situation. And it becomes not just a, a crime, but also just it's a family dysfunction. 
Exactly. It becomes a even more of a, you know, a, a psychological health, mental health and well-being issue because of the family dynamics. Look, it's already being a crime victim is already a, a has a mental health and well-being aspect to it. But when you add in there again the family dynamic, pressure from the family, all of those different things, it, it just becomes almost unbearable for these victims. Are there examples where maybe a parent has taken a child's identity, but it's because maybe they're poor or they are are in financial straits and they need to keep the lights on or something like that. And it's, it's not as malevolent as you would think in the beginning, but obviously it becomes a problem. Absolutely, there is. And I, I actually just had this conversation yesterday. And, and our focus was on trying to educate parents and let them know this is not a means to an end. So yes, there are times when parents will look at a situation and say, I, you know, we've just moved. I need to get the gas and lights turned on. I can't do it because I, I already owe money that I can't pay to the, you know, to the gas company. So I'm just going to use, you know, my son's social security number and identity to, to get the lights turned on. And in their minds, they think this is not harming anyone. It's my child. He or she is benefiting. You know, the whole family's benefiting. This is a means to an end. And I can absolutely understand that logic. And I can understand people being in, you know, situations and circumstances where they're trying to meet the needs of themselves and their family and ultimately the, even the child whose information they're using but we want to encourage parents to realize that there are long-term effects after the fact and that you are not only creating a problem for your child who is later going to have to deal with this and clean it up and it could create tremendous barriers, you're creating a problem for yourself because it's a crime. This is not an easy workaround to solve a problem that you have. You're actually committing a crime and you're victimizing your own child. And I do think that in a lot of cases, education will help because there's, it's just a a lack of understanding. It's just ignorance that, oh, this isn't a good solution to my very immediate problem. Oh, they're going to, there are going to be consequences for my child later on down the road. They just don't realize that. Right. And that's a, that's tough because there are a lot of people who are, are in a situation where they don't feel like they have a way out and that they might think this is, oh, this is a way to help the family out when in reality is just creating some long-term, long-term problems. Right. You may be getting an, an immediate need met and think it's a solution, but you're actually creating, you know, much, much bigger problems later on down the road. So I want to go back to those perpetrators that are probably never going to be caught. They might be in another country. Which is most um, of them. Right. <laughs> Unfortunately. Exactly. So what is the motivation for them? Is there just a lot of ways to make a good amount of money um, doing this? And is that what, what's driving them? Absolutely. Absolutely. The, the study that we, that we cited, and this was back in 2017, and this is just for children. This is just child identity theft. Total losses were $2.67 billion with a B. $2.67 billion in one year. That's an annual number. And when you, when you step back and look at the, the tens of billions of dollars lost to 
economic crimes, identity crimes, scams, and fraud, the money is the huge motivator. And secondarily, even if you get caught, it is a lot harder to get caught. And if you do, the consequences are nowhere near as great if you, you know, let's say you decide to rob a bank, physically go in and rob a bank. Mm -hmm. You get caught, you are going away for a long, 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 long time. For economic crimes, for white collar crimes that are considered nonviolent, you may go away for a couple of years, but if you've hidden your money well, which most of them do, you know, if it's sitting around in Bitcoin, it's just waiting for you when you get out. Yeah, you paid your you paid a small price, but it's sitting there waiting for you. So the consequences, if you get caught, are much less severe. Those are the the two biggest motivating factors. And you know, the other thing, you you didn't ask me this, but also remember that the 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 fraud ecosystem is very robust, and the bar to entry has been lowered. There isn't even a bar. Okay, it's sitting on the floor. You're walking over a piece of tape on the floor. If you <laughs> want to get into this, it is so easy. You know, you you go on the a few, you know, very basic computer skills. You can go to these marketplaces to get the programs that you want, to get the data. You don't have to be the sophisticated hacker that's actually infiltrating these systems and exfiltrating the data. It's then offered for sale dark web. Right. And profiles. Yeah. So you have all, you have this, like you said, an ecosystem, you have the hackers who are, who get the information and then they go and sell it. And then you could just be any old Joe who wants to make some money. Yep. It's a marketplace and you can decide what your role in that marketplace is. And very easily that's, that's your entree into being a fraudster. It's just, it doesn't require the, these high level skills and, and the sophistication that it used to, even with imposter scams, it doesn't require it. And, and I have the benefit, you know, because of the, the timing of my career, I watched the transition from this, this virtual and online crimes. And, you know, the, you know what the con in con man stands for? No. <laughs> confidence. Con man, confidence or con woman. And that was an accurate statement because it required a level of confidence and an ability to look someone in the eye and be able to tell them a bold-faced lie with this level of certainty that would actually get them to go, well, they wouldn't lie to my face. And you had to look the part. You, you know, you had to have the clothes and the look and all of that to kind of perpetrate these imposter scams. And now you don't need that. You just, again, some basic computer skills, being able to, you know, Photoshop and grab images off the internet and you can build a persona. You don't even have to be with that persona. You don't even have to be the same gender that you actually are because we've removed a lot of that, that face to face. And that's a big part of the evolution of these, of these crimes. They've, Again, the bar to entry is so much lower. So what can an everyday person like myself do to try to keep from becoming a victim um, of identity theft? I mean, I know, for example, that my credit card's been used before or my credit card number's been used before in a way that was unauthorized, but 
I think Capital One was the one that caught it, not me. <laughs> well, and and that's p- part of it. So I, you know, I talk about identity hygiene and cyber hygiene, and there are a lot of little things that you can do to both minimize your risk and minimize the impact. So, you know, in the with the example of an existing credit card account, set alerts. Set alerts on that account so that you know when the card is being used so that you can catch the crime early on. And while because we have these laws in place that minimize your liability, your your exposure to the fraudulent charges, and so you're not paying any out of pocket, just remember that your your credit card company is. And when that happens on you know on mass, when that happens at scale, we're all paying for that. We're paying for those fraud losses through things like higher interest rates and higher fees, et cetera, et cetera. So kind of doing your part to say, I'm not going to let you steal this money from our you know, overall economy because I'm going to get these alerts and I'm going to catch it on the first transaction. That's something that really helps both yourself and, and everybody. But it's, it's other little things as well. Freezing your credit, it's free now. It's um, not that difficult. It doesn't create, you can thought very easily now if you need to apply for new credit. It really is one of the most robust, proactive uh, consumer protection steps that you can take. And then there, there are just a number of other little behaviors that add up, not self-compromising. When you have emails coming in, that you weren't expecting or text messages or even phone calls, just realizing that, you know what, I'm vulnerable. I, I, if, if I didn't initiate this contact, I need to go to the source. And I know that sounds like leading kind of a, a skeptic's life, but that really is where we're at right now. You, you have to be a little bit skeptical of all the, the incoming communication. And it's not that hard. You know, you get a call from someone saying they're from your bank you get the information. You don't give them any information. Say, okay, well, I'm calling back. And you call the number on the back of your card. Or if you you know, use online banking or mobile banking, you log in through your app or through your account online and say, are they trying to get in touch with me? And no legitimate organization is going to start yelling at you over the phone. If they start screaming or, or getting angry or saying, you have to pay attention to this right now, that is a huge red flag that it's a scammer. You know, you, you said, you know, Capital One, if they're calling and saying it's us and you say, hey, I have to verify this, they're going to say, okay, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Please, you know, call either call the number on the back of your card. They're going to encourage that behavior. They're not going to start screaming at you. And you said at the beginning of our conversation that a lot of when you see victims come to your organization, they've been dealing with it for a very long time, and that a lot of them are already extreme cases. So if I am a victim of identity theft, who should I reach out to? Should I, should I come to the ID Resource Center? What steps should I take? And absolutely. And, and just to clarify, a lot of the victims may have been dealing with it a long, for a long time, or they're calling us because it's such um, a big issue. It's not just one existing account. They've come to find out that there are multiple issues that they have to deal with and they don't know where to start. So we always encourage people, please get help. This is a really complicated space. That's why you know people like me devote their life 
to trying to, you know, help people unwind it because it's not easy. It's not simple and it's changing all the time. It's very dynamic. So don't be, you know, embarrassed or ashamed or think somehow that you have to manage this yourself. If you, if you fall and break your leg, you don't feel embarrassed that you had to go to the doctor to get a cast. You don't look at yourself and go, I should have been able to set my own broken leg. No, you understand that you, you need professional help in that instance. And this is the same thing. Even if you somehow feel responsible, like, oh, I clicked on that link or, oh, I talked to that person on the phone and gave them my information. Look, we don't care. We don't care what the reason is. We just want to help you recover and restore that. So coming to the Identity Theft Resource Center, calling our toll-free number, you can live chat with us. There are a number of ways that you can engage with us and get one-on-one help. And remember, we're a 501c3 nonprofit, so all of our services are free to the public. But there are other free resources out there too. The Federal Trade Commission has idtheft.gov, and a lot of free resources. The National Cybersecurity Alliance has a ton of online free resources. There, there are just a number out there. And so don't feel like you have to do it alone. And a lot of times people will keep trying. They'll, they'll think they can figure it out on their own. And some of them might. But it's really important to start like with the most, start with the steps that are going to have the most impact immediately. So if you have had your email compromised, let's say. My first advice to you is not going to be freeze your credit. Now, that might be later on down the line because I would like to see everyone freeze their credit. But the first thing I'm going to tell you to do is, okay, you know, get into your email account and change your password right away mm-hmm. so that you can then take control of it. And then, and please, I want you to go in and change the passwords on all of your other accounts because we are such creatures of habit. We like to reuse the same simple password over and over and over and the thieves know it. So they'll go, okay, I've got one username and password. I am now going to do through brute force. I'm just going to try to crack all these other accounts. So the, the advice and the steps that you take have to be really relevant to your personal experience. What exactly is happening to you at this moment? And it's places like ours and experts like, like us and the others that I mentioned that can really help you narrow your focus and make sure that you're taking, you know, doing those, those most important steps first. Great. Is there anything else that we haven't covered today that you think is important to that people should know? Looking at some of my notes here, because we talked about, I think the the only other thing that I would uh, like to see parents have top of mind is that it really is never too early to start educating your kids about sort of safe online practices and understanding that their data and their identity credentials have value and they matter. And eventually, even though it's mom and dad's job right now, eventually, you know, it's going to be your job as you get older. And, and having the, the talk about that at intervals, they're age appropriate and starting early. This isn't necessarily something you go, okay, by the way, you're 18 now. So let me tell you how this works. <laughs> you, you know, kids are getting online and having their own devices earlier and earlier and earlier. So this is just part of parenting now and and educating them. And there are some wonderful resources. I know the National PTA has some amazing um, resources that have really taken the guesswork out of it for parents. 
So again, seek those out. The information on how to do these things is out there. You just, you just have to make it a priority. Illegal Tender is made by Yahoo Finance from our homes in New York City. This season was written and hosted by me, Jana Heron. Illegal Tender was created, edited, and produced by Alex Sugg. Thank you to Axton Betts Hamilton for sharing your story. And thank you to the Identity Theft Resource Center for connecting us. If you enjoyed this podcast, please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and review. Until next time, thank you for listening to Illegal Tender.